Hello, welcome again to the Expanding Eyes podcast and to our continuing discussion of Milton's Paradise Lost, where we have reached a crucial moment, the crucial moment, the climactic moment of Book Nine, The Fall of Humanity. We have been speaking of the end of Book Eight, where we will take up momentarily right now in order to build up to this climax of the entire epic. Milton has declared from the very first page of Paradise Lost that the goal of this epic is to justify the ways of God to men, probably the single most famous line in the entire epic. The problem is that in terms of sheer logic, there is probably no way to work out a justification of the fall because Adam and Eve have been created unfallen and therefore by definition perfect. God created everything in the first week of creation and saw that it was good. And something that is good and unfallen shouldn't even be logically tempted to fall. To be tempted implies some sort of weakness, and a weakness implies some sort of flaw or fault. Therefore, it is difficult to argue logically about the fall. In my view, and I will carefully characterize this as my view, my way of understanding Milton, it is to Milton's credit that he allows himself to go beyond reasons that in the end could only be rationalizations because logically they won't hold up. He is wise enough to understand whether it was intuitively or consciously that something deeper than just reasoning has to go on here if we are really going to get a grip on the causes of the fall. And he reaches down to a psychological level, which may not be rational by Aristotelian standards, but reaches deep into the complexities of human nature, including perhaps his own human nature. I believe, as I will show, that there is a, in the psychological portrayal of Adam in particular, there is an autobiographical component. I do not want to reduce Paradise Lost to some sort of veiled confessional autobiography. Nonetheless, I think Milton put something of himself into the feelings of Adam. And I think he is doing so perhaps most overtly, almost flagrantly, of all in the whole epic at the end of book eight before we get to book nine. Book eight finally ends the long colloquy between Raphael, the archangel sent down to instruct Adam and Eve, 
And at this point, just Adam, because Eve has gone off to tend the garden. And book N eight ends after several books of pleasant and fascinating conversation with a jarring discord. Suddenly, the mood goes bad, and it's disconcerting to both the human being and the angel, and to us as readers, that suddenly the conversation takes a wrong turn and no one seems to have a, quite a grip on what happened here, why all of a sudden we're both upset with each other, man and angel. And as these conversations will do, usually between two human beings and not with an angel, but this conversation is very human in the way that it suddenly goes wrong and bewilders the two people who thought they were getting along so well. A misstep and it plunges into something dark. Adam has been telling the story of his creation to Raphael and recounts the creation of himself, then recounts the creation of Eve, and Eve goes off after her creation, and Adam at first loses her and has to go hunting with increasingly frantic emotions, trying desperately to find her. Line 477, she disappeared and left me dark. I wake to find her or forever to deplore her loss and other pleasures all abjure. He hasn't even talked to this woman yet, and yet he is desperate to find her and knows that if he cannot find her, he will be obsessed endlessly with her. He does find her, but ends his story to Raphael by trying to explain, or if not explain, at least characterize the feelings he has about Eve, not just at that one moment where he panicked, but the continuing nature of his emotional relationship to Eve. And it is an unexpected, strange, and yet fascinating speech. This is part of it. Adam says around line 530, here meaning with Eve or about Eve, here passion first I felt, commotion strange, in all enjoyments else superior and unmoved, here only weak against the charm of beauty's powerful glance. Or nature failed in me, and left some part not proof enough such object to sustain, or from my side subducting took perhaps more than enough, at least on her bestowed too much of ornaments in outward show elaborate of inward less exact. For well I understand in the prime end of nature her the inferior, in the mind and inward faculties, which most excel, 
in outward also her resemblance less his image who made both and less expressing the character of that dominion given over other creatures yet when i approach her loveliness so absolute she seems and in herself complete so well to know her own that what she wills to do or say seems wisest virtuousest discreetest best all higher knowledge in her presence falls degraded wisdom in discourse with her loses discountenanced and like folly shows authority and reason on her wait and the response of the angel is immediate and sharp to whom the angel with contracted brow we always have to read carefully in Milton for the telltale phrases and clues. Raphael is frowning. He is not pleased. He is quite disturbed by what Adam has said. And rips into him for exactly what he has just said. And Raphael's opinion is, I would say, at once deserved and, in a certain way, undeserved. I don't think either of the two conversationalists here truly understand what Adam has been saying. Raphael assumes that Adam is simply fallen victim to animal lust that he has allowed his reason and better judgment to simply fly out the window in favor of a kind of animal desire. And to give Raphael credit, Adam does speak in terms that I think indicate that Adam himself doesn't quite get it here, talks about her too much of ornament in outward show elaborate. He himself has the tendency to blame it on she's just too damn beautiful and I am totally submissive to that. I think that is Adam not understanding his own feelings exactly, that it may seem as if it's just her beauty and therefore that this is a physical thing a physical obsession, but I think that's a cover story. I think something else deeper is going on. Nonetheless, Raphael takes it as that and speaks to Adam in a way that must have totally stung Adam and clearly did, judging by Adam's response. A humiliating put down, really. What higher in her society, around line 586, thou findst attractive human rational love still? In loving thou dost well, in passion not. Love refines the thoughts and heart enlarges, but 
to love thou mayest ascend, not sunk in carnal pleasure, for which cause among the beasts for thee no mate for thee was found. I mean, that's outright insulting. I think Raphael may be an angel, but he loses it a little bit there. That is tactless, to put it mildly, that you're being just like an animal. And Adam's response, line 595 again, you always have to read Milton's carefully to catch often the clue is just a momentary adjective or epithet to whom thus half abashed adam replied he's half put down but then there's the other half and the other half fights back pushes back neither her outside form so fair, nor odd in procreation common to all kinds. That's not it. So much delights me, yes, but there is something else. And unfortunately, it stops there where they should have perhaps continued to probe and come to some deeper psychological understanding. They basically just kind of cover it up and go on. What did happen there? What is Adam saying? If we go back for a moment, what Adam is expressing is not a physical lust or obsession for Eve, but an emotional dependency that when he is in her presence, so absolute she seems and in herself complete that everything that she wills to do or say seems wisest, virtuousest, discreetest, best. All higher knowledge in her presence falls degraded. Wisdom seems like folly. It's an emotional response of dependency and inferiority the one who is ideologically endlessly said throughout the poem to be superior is the one where there is a complete reversal and he feels inferior and emotionally dependent on Eve. What does that come from? If we go from Adam to speaking of the gender dynamics of the entire human race, common patterns. One thing we can say is this, all human beings of whatever gender grow up, first of all, in relation to the mother, to the female. All human beings of any gender are born of a woman's body Adam was not, but interestingly, Adam is replaying something that probably comes from that fact. He is supposed to be the single exception of the entire human race, and yet it appears that he's not exceptional at all. We are born from a woman's body and in traditional upbringings. The Mother, the maternal figure, is the first source of 
emotional security, closeness, love, as well as food. Babies do not distinguish between physical security and emotional security. It's all blended together. And in fact, according to depth psychology, the child does not even fully distinguish the mother as an other. Sometimes some of the feminist psychoanalysts make a pun on mother and other. The mother is not fully other or seems that way and yet eventually must become other. We must separate. We must move emotionally away from the mother and from the maternal environment of security if we're ever to grow up and be autonomous human beings. Both men and women have to make that psychological break and it is a costly break. It is, and I am far from the first person to make this observation, and it isn't even entirely just a scholarly observation, it's reflected in literature. To lose the mother is to lose paradise. We lose the first best security, warmth, and love of our lives. Both genders do so, but women, the break is less sharp and jarring with women which is both good and bad because women pay a different type of price. Women do not break so completely, at least according to certain theories, and some of this draws upon feminist psychoanalytic scholarship of the 80s and 90s, which I continue to find compelling or at least resonant, that it makes sense. Women continue to be related to the mother more because the mother is a role model. And instead, as some of the feminists of the 80s were, wrote some fascinating books saying, if the woman has a developmental problem at that crucial moment of coming of age, it's more what they called a boundary problem, not knowing where I begin and the mother ends. And the mother doesn't know that either. And some of the bitter fights between mothers and, and daughters during the adolescent years of coming of age are boundary disputes. The male, however, Freud was mistaken and inadequate about some things, but he had a sharp intuition with the myth of the Oedipus complex about the necessity of the male break, which has to be much sharper and therefore more painful, because the man must become the opposite of the mother, must totally break the apron strings in the English slang phrase. I mean, so much of it comes out in the popular culture phrases of this necessity, the enormous pressure of the boy to break with the mother and therefore with the feminine in general. If the boy does not, he is a mama's boy, one of the worst insults that the peer group of other boys can direct at him. 
and therefore makes that break, but it costs him emotionally. And the price is a hollow space, a sense of loss inside him all his life. And he is always, according again to depth psychology of various thinkers, he is always, therefore, trying to make up for that loss, yearning, yearning for the feminine, and emotionally dependent on it in the way that a child yearning after the mother would be. Men, therefore, cover up. That's humiliating, and it's also vulnerable and dangerous. And therefore, it's covered up with various forms of what is sometimes called masculine protest. Hyper-male posturing, trying to prove total masculinity, there isn't the feminine bone in my body, and so forth and so on. But underneath is an emotional dependency. Macho behavior and sexism in general derives from this. It's one theory. It's one that I offer as making sense to me. It explains the mystery of human history in terms of sexism and patriarchy. Why? Men should treat women as such a threat that they need to be controlled and dominated. Women have never been a threat. Men, women have never had any power. But it's emotional power that women have over men, which is not their fault. We're not talking about women being manipulative, though men think that. But the manipulation is really their own minds, and it's projected on the woman. Adam is feeling that sort of thing already, though, yes, logically, he is not of woman born and perhaps should not be. But Milton is trying to explain all of humanity, not one unique first forebear. And I do believe, personally, take it for what it is worth, that some of his own feelings about women are coming into play here. I wouldn't want to take that so far. Reducing things to the poet's biography is a shallow mode of criticism. But on the other hand, trying to pretend it's not there is equally shallow in a different direction. Therefore, neither of them get it. Raphael is repelled thinking that this guy has just fallen into animal lust. That's not it at all. But Adam himself doesn't really get a grip on it. And that is too bad because that leads to the fall. It is this, this psychological inadequacy that leads to the fall. They seem to switch the subject and Milton with his delightful sharp wit. Adam seems to just say, well, let's talk of more pleasant things. But the thing that he brings up is the sex life of the angels. For decades of teaching Paradise Lost, I have used this as a way to lighten up the class. And in fact, I tell them it's coming. If you hang on, we're going to talk about angel sex. 
And here we are. It's a brief moment, a dozen lines, but okay. Angels who eat lunch, that's one thing. And we sort of simply took it as a matter of course when Raphael said, well, you know, we, we have spiritual bodies, but they are bodies, real bodies. And everything that your body does, all your senses, all of your impulses like hunger, we also have on a higher spiritualized level. Well, that leads to Adam's question. Uh, do you guys have sex? And no doubt I'm reading my own interpretation into this, but why that now? I think this is Adam's revenge. You embarrassed me? Okay, dude, I'll embarrass you. You guys have sex? And it works. I laugh every time around line 620. To whom the angel, with a smile, he's, he's good natured about this, with a smile that glowed celestial rosy red, love's proper hue, answered. Angels can blush, is embarrassed, but he answers. So they're back on friendly terms again. Let it suffice thee, <laughs> you're not getting details, in other words, but let it suffice thee that thou knowest us happy and without love, meaning physical love, no happiness. Whatever pure thou in the body enjoyest and pure thou wert created, we enjoy in eminence and obstacle find none in membrane, joint, or limb exclusive bars. Easier than air with air, if spirits embrace, total they mix, union of pure with pure desiring, nor restrained conveyance need as flesh to mix with flesh or soul with soul. Okay, at first we think he's just going to fluff it off, let it suffice thee, but he does actually go on to say, okay, whatever you have, we have in eminence, we have better, and how is it better? Because we have spiritual bodies, and what that means is that when angels have sex, their entire bodies commingle or to use a phrase of the literary critic Northrop Pry, which here in a sexual sense is absolutely intended, interpenetrate. Their entire bodies merge together. And this isn't just a sort of a, a novel twist or a kind of an angelic choke. This is intended to think about the nature of sexuality and the nature of our relationship to the body, that we speak, for example, in the marriage ceremony of two become one flesh and the ideal of two actually becoming one, as almost always symbolized by sexual union, is commonplace is everywhere. And in the angels, it, it comes to its full development. Or to put it in the body phrase 
of the later poet William Blake, influenced by Milton. Blake puts it, that was a long and rather circumlocuting response of an embarrassed archangel. Blake puts it in two raunchy lines. In eternity, embraces our comminglings from head to foot, and not a pompous high priest entering by a secret place. Which puns on sexual anatomy likened to in the Old Testament, the high priest alone being able to enter the darkness of the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies. So, okay, angels have sex, book eight, over. And the tone darkens once again. That might be the last lighthearted moment in Paradise Lost. Book nine opens with yet another of Milton's amazing invocations to the muse in which he becomes extremely personal and often poignant as here. Book nine opens no more to, of talk where God or angel guest with man as with his friend, familiar used to sit indulgent. And goes on to add, I now must change those notes to tragic. We have reached the climax of Paradise Lost and realize that the shape of this epic is tragic. And as always, before he goes on to talking about that, talks about his relationship to that theme and the process of choosing. He had to think about this when he was young, and we have passages in Milton's prose, a few of which I read early on, talking about choosing a subject back when Milton was young in the 1640s before the long 20-year gap caused by the Civil War and Milton's involvement in it, where he toyed with what the subject of a great Christian English epic would be. And he lists here the rejected possibilities, all of which go down, come down to, I reject wars and heroic subjects. And line 40, it is not that which justly gives heroic name to person or to poem. All that battle stuff, that's not something that gives a heroic name to an epic or a poet. I am going to try, he says, if answerable style, often quoted line, line 20, I can obtain, a style that answers this high purpose, higher than the purpose of the traditional epics, but goes on to talk about the muse. This is another invocation. My celestial patroness, who deigns her nightly visitation unemployed 
and dictates to me slumbering or inspires easy my unpremeditated verse. And we get a little instance of Milton talking about what if he were being interviewed nowadays would be about his methods of composition, this blind man composing this enormous epic. The, view, the muse visits nightly, unimplored. I don't have to ask the muse, really. We're supposed to invoke and beg the muse, and Milton does that at earlier moments. But here, he's talking about what actually happens when he composed at night. It's, you might say it shouldn't make any difference if you're blind, but night when everyone else is asleep, perhaps. A night when the mood is best for musing, for the inwardly turned. And dictates to me, even when he's asleep, dictates to me slumbering or inspires easy my unpremeditated verse. It flows out of him at night, sometimes even when he is asleep. Fascinating look psychologically at how Milton composed poetry. The actual verse, the real struggle was to find the right subject. And another often quoted line, line 26, long choosing and beginning late. But this is the higher argument. And it is at this point, the point of the fall of humanity in this book, that it is perhaps a good time to work into our discussion an old conundrum and that's where we will end this time and take it further, take up from this point and take it further next time. It's an old conundrum of criticism. Who is the hero of Paradise Lost? I often throw this out as a possibility for students wrestling with as a paper topic. What should we say because Epics are supposed to have heroes, and by the traditional definition, an epic hero is one who accomplishes the epic goal or quest. Adam should be the hero, but Adam fails. If he is a hero, he is a tragic hero, a hero with a flaw who fails the quest. But that is not typical of epic. That comes out of dramatic tragedy. The idea of tragic flaw it comes from Aristotle talking about Greek tragedy. Epic heroes are supposed to accomplish their quests. They may die. Achilles dies soon after the Iliad. Aeneas dies soon after the Aeneid. Beowulf dies at the very end of Beowulf, but not before he defeats his third and greatest foe, the dragon. And he dies at, of a combination of wounds and old age. He is at the end of the career, but he dies victorious. Adam is not victorious.
and what kind of an epic ends with a failed quest. And of course, we're immediately reminded of the romantic vote for right invoked for Satan as the real hero, that there is a vacuum here. Adam doesn't measure up to being the hero. Satan, however, very much impresses us at the outset. We will see what happens to Satan from this point onward, but at the outset, theologically, and I will set this up now and we will go further with it next time, theologically, the right answer is, even though it jars us as not ringing emotionally right, theologically, the answer is the Son of God or Christ who in the larger Christian myth accomplishes the goal, the quest, and defeats the evil antagonist Satan and brings about the happy ending, the divine comedy in Dante's phrase. But that's outside the epic. It is a daring move for Milton to compose an epic modeled, as we know, even in the beginning from the Trinity manuscript, an actual sketch of a tra tragic drama instead of an epic. And that has left its mark in several ways. And we go on to follow that next time.